Hey, thanks so much for checking out Crossview Church Sermons and listening to this podcast. Every week you can expect a message that strengthens your faith and encourages you in your walk with God. You're about to hear a message from our lead pastor, Chris Dirksen. Anyway, we started a new series last week on the book of Job. And as I said last week, we bounce back and forth here at Crossview. We do topical series and we take passages of Scripture And this is a passage of scripture series. We're working through Job and letting Job tell us what we want to think about. Job is picking the topics. And we started last week, we got through the first half of Job chapter 1. Today we're going to get to the second half of of Job chapter 1. But just so you know, there are 42 chapters and I'm not going to take that long to get through this series. We'll be in it for a couple of years. All right, so at a certain point when we get to the long speeches, we will cover much larger swaths of scripture at a time. But today, in the second half of chapter one, there's a couple of big questions that Job wants to address and that we need to address. And one of the things we're going to see right away in the beginning, I don't want to explain too much of this, but what kind of a book is this anyway? And some of the things that appear in this story, as you'll see in the first few verses when we start to look at them, it's kind of weird. We wouldn't write a story like that. So what kind of a book is Job anyway? And the big question, though, that we want to get to in the second half of this sermon, in the second half of chapter one, is how to suffer in a godly way. The book of Job is not just a book of why do we suffer. Actually, I think... For Job, the more in question is not why, the more important question in Job is how. How do we suffer? Not just why, but how. But with that in mind, let's just jump right into it. We ended in verse 12 last week. We're going to pick up in verse 13, and now calamity strikes Job. Calamity strikes Job. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting, and we looked at this last week, remember, they were big on birthday parties. Specifically, these were birthday parties, all right? So we're feasting and drinking wine at the older brother's, oldest brother's house. A messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabians attacked and made off with them. So this is Job, this is the first hit, this is the first calamity for Job. He loses his uh, oxen and donkeys. And they put the servants to the sword. So all the servants were killed as well. And I am the only one, right? That's really important. I am the only one. Thankfully, one person at least escaped. It wasn't two, it wasn't three, it wasn't four. There wasn't a bunch of wounded. Exactly one person escapes to tell Job the message. I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, so Job doesn't even get a chance to respond. Job doesn't get a chance to process. I just lost all of my oxen and donkeys. While that one guy who escaped is still given the message, another messenger came and said, the fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep. By the way, in the Old Testament, whenever you see the fire of God, this is how Old Testament people, what, what, what natural storm event do you think might equate to the fire of God in ancient times? Lightning. Lightning. Oh, you guys are Old Testament scholars. It's awesome. All right? So, I mean, imagine being an ancient person and you don't understand about electricity. What do you think lightning is? You think it's fire from God. So that's what they actually called it. So anyway, the fire of God, massive lightning fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep 
and the servants. So he's lost his oxen and donkeys. Now he has lost his sheep in a massive lightning strike. And I, again, not two people escape or four people with some wounded. There's no messy details like that. It's very clean. It's exactly the same as the first one. I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. Now, before Job has a chance to process this, so this has all been, as one guy's talking, the next guy shows up. Before Job has any chance to process this, what's he going to say? What's he going to feel? What's he going to do? Before he has a chance to process, while he was still speaking. I don't know if you've noticed a pattern yet. Another messenger came and said, all right, what's it going to be this time? The Chaldeans, and I wanted to fit it all on one screen. So I, I left out a few words. If you think I'm taking things out of context, please look it up in Job chapter 1. The Chaldeans, it says that they broke into three parties, swept down on your camels and made off of them. So now he's lost his oxen and donkeys. He's lost his sheep. Now he's going to lose his camels. He's lost his camels, this time to the Chaldeans. So it was, it was Sabians. Then it was lightning. Then it was Chaldeans. And he put the servants to the sword. And again, it's not, I don't know why I just said sword. <laughs> It should just be sword. I think I've done that a couple times now today. So the sword <laughs> sounds kind of epic, but put the servants to the sword. And again, it's not two or three or four made it out or 11 or seven or there's wounded. I got to go back for they kill all the servants. It's just one guy. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. Now, before Job has a chance to process this information, what do you think the next verse is going to start with? While he was still speaking. Bit of a pattern here, right? Now, I don't know if you've ever read a biography or a true story or a newspaper. Now, in modern times, when we write these genres, how many of those kinds of things that we read in modern times reads like this? It's different. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, and of course now he gets the most devastating news of all. The most devastating. He's lost his animals. That's bad enough. He's lost all his wealth. But now he's going to lose by far the worst thing. Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house. When suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house, it collapsed on them, and they are dead. I mean, this is terrible, 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 terrible news. And how many servants do you think escaped to tell? That's going to be one. And I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. All right? Now, we're going to dive into the heart of some of this and try to grapple with the emotional aspects of this. But first, we just need to grapple with, what kind of a story is this? I mean, there's a clear pattern. Um, I just got some of the basic pieces up here. I, there's actually more I could show you. But first of all, there's a clear pattern. The, the disasters alternate. It's not like natural, natural, people, people. It's not natural, people, people, natural. It's the first disaster with the oxen and donkeys, it's a people problem. Then it's a nature problem. It's a lightning problem. It's a people problem. It's Chaldeans. It's, it's a nature problem. And every time we have a very clear formula, one person exactly escapes. 
And every one is timed perfectly while the other messenger was still speaking. While the other messenger was still speaking. This is not the way we, if you would read a newspaper, this is not the way we talk about news events. This is not the way we write biographies. And unfortunately, because of that, for some people, this is something that they lose their faith over. I remember very specifically being in university in, uh, in Langley, BC. I went to university, Trinity Western University there for a couple of years. I remember overhearing a couple of guys talking specifically about Job. At the time, I didn't know what to say. But they were talking, and these were guys who had been raised Christians all their lives. And for the first time in their lives, had been exposed to some of this pattern and, and the numbers and the patterns. Like, for example... It's also very interesting that there's exactly four tragedies. Like, like the first tragedy, you have two kinds of animals split up. And then the other ones, you have one. And then it's all the kids. It's organized in such a way that it's in a group of four. And in ancient times, fours were a big deal when it came to disasters. For example, and you'll see this throughout the Bible. How many horsemen of the apocalypse are there in the book of Revelation? Revelation chapter 6. How many? Is it three? Is it seven? It's four. It's right. It's the famous. It's the four horsemen of the apocalypse. If you read Revelation chapter 9, how many angels are bound up for the end of time to be released and kill a third of mankind? It's four. And I could take you through Ezekiel and Zechariah and other documents inside of the Bible where four is the number. Disasters come in fours. So none of this, all of this is very intentional. None of this is accidental. And I remember hearing two of my university friends discussing this after being exposed to it for the first time. And basically them coming to the conclusion, which I didn't share with them, but I also didn't know what to say to them because I had never been exposed to this either. But basically they came to the conclusion that this is all just a fairy tale. The, this, the, the book of Job is a fairy tale. This means it's not true. The Bible is a fairy tale, and they were losing their faith over this. Now, that is a completely wrong way, I think, of looking at this issue. And I actually think the book of Job is going to come more alive when I explain some background to you. And so I want to, but I want to just sit in this for just a moment, because the, the Bible is not the book we want it to be. It's the book God gave us. So as modern people, we sometimes want to make the Bible a modern book. And God says, actually, no. Part of the reason I gave you this book as an ancient library of books is I think God actually wants to humble us as modern people sometimes. And he says, you're actually going to take the truth the way I want to give it to you. We don't get to make the Bible the book we want. We receive the Bible in the way that God gave it to us. So you say, well, why would they organize a story in this manner, in a manner that we would not tell a story. Well, the first thing you have to understand is that in ancient times, almost nobody, almost nobody could read or write, all right? And we don't even understand in modern times what a big difference this makes, right? People in ancient times had almost no access to information, People did not have bookshelves in their homes with encyclopedias to look up for facts or how-to books. 
They did not have the internet. They did not have how-to videos on YouTube. How can I patch a drywall hole? I don't need to call a drywaller. I can go on YouTube and figure it out. That's what some of you do. I don't do that. <laughs> All right? Even if I knew how to do it, I still can't do it. Right? So I have other problems. But I didn't have YouTube videos. What do I do when my car won't start? How do I make my garden grow better? They didn't have books to access. They didn't have internet to access. They, we live in a society, and we don't even understand how profoundly different it is. We live in a society that for really the, is unique in history that is awash in information. Even the fact the Bible itself is a book that's written down, it's full of information. If you want to look up what is God's plan for salvation? You can go in your Bible, you can look it up. You can look up what are God's commands, how should I live? You can go in your Bible and look it up. Ancient people, nobody in the Old Testament or New Testament times had a Bible on their shelf at home. Never mind the fact that not only do you and I have Bibles we can look up, what does God think about this, how should I live with this, we don't even need to use the physical Bible. We can go on Google and say, give me all the Bible verses on how to be content. Some of you do this. And you, there's whole sites devoted to, here's everything the Bible says about this. And you don't even have to look through the physical Bible. It's just information at your fingertips. Nobody living back here had access to that kind of information. And think about how profoundly that changes your life. You can't just on a whim, if you have a question, what would God, how would God want me to live in X or Y situation? You have nowhere to go to find that information. So how do you find that information? Well, for ancient people, ancient people had a totally different relationship with information than we do today. First of all, the only information that helped them was information they could remember. Can you imagine if your life depended on only what you could remember? Like most of us would be long dead. <laughs> I mean, I, I bet you if I ask for a show of hands, some of you will remember your social insurance number. I, I remember mine. I just about said it, and I won't now, but... I don't know. I, in fact, I'll just ask for a show of hands. I'd just like to see a proportion. How many of you off the, top of your, off the top of your head remember what your social insurance number is? Just raise your hand. Well, that's a shocking amount. That's pretty good. Okay. Now, the rest of you, that is nine simple digits. Do you know how little amount of information that is? Okay, I have another question for you. How many of you, okay, so you got social insurance number, Manitoba health number, also a nine-digit number. How many of you off the top of your head remember your Manitoba health number? Okay, look around. Those are the nerds. <laughs> nerd, nerd. Again, nine-digit number. It's not like it changes. You need it every time you go to the doctor. You know how much information is encoded in nine digits? Almost none. But we can't remember it. We have it on our phones. We have it. Your passwords, most of us don't remember our passwords that we need Google to do that for us, right? Like if Google ever shuts down, I'm never getting into my bank accounts ever again. <laughs> or into DAZN or Netflix, it's over. I gotta just burn it all and start from scratch. You can't remember how, we, most of us went to school 
We studied hard for all kinds of exams with important historical and scientific information, and the vast majority of us would utterly fail those exams today. We can't remember any of it. We live in a world where we don't remember hardly anything because the fact of the matter is the human brain is not that good at remembering details. The human brain is shockingly amazing at many things, but it is not amazing at remembering details. Except, well, there's probably a couple exceptions, but there is for sure one major exception. There is a kind of information that is sticky for human brains. Human brains gravitate, in fact, to this kind of information. Does anybody, can anybody see where I'm kind of going with this right now? Just shout it out. Stories. Stories. Jacob Giesbrecht, gold star in heaven, another crown. Stories. You can't remember anything from your grade 12 exams, but when I say things like Cinderella, Goldilocks and the Three Bears, the Three Little Pigs, I mean, even Jack and the Beanstalk, that's a little more of an obscure one, Snow White and the How Many Dwarves, how many? Seven. You might not remember all their names, but do you remember the number? Little Red Riding Hood. If I had a test on those stories, what are all those? They're all stories. If I had a test on those stories right now, even though many of you haven't thought about those stories in years, you haven't studied one little bit, it is the most completely useless information ever, and most of us would do amazing on the test. You would know the plot line. Like, goodness knows what kind of important information could be in your brain, and you have Goldilocks. But you could know the plot line, you would know some of the main characters, and you're not even trying to remember that stuff, it just sticks. Why? Because a human brain was made by God to remember stories. Now this brings up a second very important thing then between ancient people and information. For us now today in modern times, we don't rely on stories for information because we can get our information everywhere else. We don't have to rely on our memories because anything we need to know, we can go and find. But in ancient times, you had to know stuff and remember it. And so ancient people had a very different relationship, not just to information, but to stories than we do. Oral stories in ancient times were one of the most effective ways of passing along important information, and not theoretical information. Remember, in ancient times, people didn't have brain space for useless facts, just like we don't now, but it's all there for us to look up when we need it. People didn't have brain space for all kinds of useless facts. So important information, even practical information about hunting, farming, wisdom for life, and how to live and how to please God, all of these very important pieces of information about how to live, how to please God, and all these things were put into stories. And not big stories. Like, we have stories today, too. And we, we like, you know, any of you who likes to read, if you like, you know, fantasy, for example, you might love Lord of the Rings. There's like three books, and they're each this thick. And you, you, lo you can lose yourself in, that, in those stories for months, and you, you read before bed, you put, put a bookmark in, you come back to the next night. 
they didn't have that in ancient times. So they encoded their most important information, got encoded into simple oral stories that you could tell and pass on to your kids that could be passed on for generations and none of the important, most important information would be lost. This is how ancient people remembered important stuff. And when you don't have a Bible, how do you know important things about God and how do you get that passed on when there's no booklets or internet or church services to go to? You pass on important truths about God and how to live for him in stories, and you pass them on in stories that can be remembered by organizing them in patterns and poems with symbolic numbers and all these things that as modern people, it's almost like we disrespect it. We're like, I want newspaper literalism. Ancient people had no space for newspaper literalism. How can that be remembered? So we want our... God, in fact, invented this because this is he is the one who invented the brain. We tell our most important stories that have the most important truths about how to live for God. We organize them into poetry and patterns with pictures and symbols so that they can be passed on forever. By the way, or not forever, but for a long time, this is probably what happened with the book of Job. The book of Job was probably being passed around orally or not the book of Job, I shouldn't say the book of Job was. The story of, the, the, the story of Job was probably being passed around for centuries before someone wrote it down. The person who wrote the book of Job was not a reporter who went and interviewed Job and Job's friends. The person who wrote down the book of Job, they got a nudge from the Holy Spirit. And by the way, the Holy Spirit was involved in all of this. It started with him making our brains to remember stories. And he was involved in this whole process of, in the nation of Israel, what are the most important stories for Israelites to tell? And what do people need to know? And one of the things that people really need to know is, because we all encounter it in our lives, ancient and modern, is we encounter suffering. But there was no book for ancient Israelites to go and look at and say, how do I suffer in a godly way? So the Holy Spirit was already long at work in ancient times, long before the Bible. He said, let's, we need a story, could be very well be based on a very historical figure named Job, but we've got to organize this into a way that isn't just a list of facts that everybody's going to forget. We have to organize it in a way that can be told for generations that will explain not just a useless list of facts, but will tell people when you encounter suffering, how do you suffer in a godly way? And so the book of Job is an intensely, intensely practical story and book as well, answering more importantly even than why do we suffer, the book of Job is very concerned with how should we suffer. And so we get to verse 20, and this, when we get to verse 20, we now get to Job's response. We get to Job's response to his suffering. This response is not a sidebar to the book of Job. It's the core of the book of Job. It's not like, let's 
oh, let's just get past this. This is just Job having a reaction. Let's get to the philosophical parts about why are we suffering. This is the point. How Job suffers in this story is meant to offer us, who will all experience suffering in our lives, a path, a practical path forward when you're suffering. How do you respond in a godly way? That's what Job is very concerned with. And so, let's pay attention to how Job responds. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground and worshiped. Now, I'm just going to leave this. This is just this verse. The next verse starts in the next word. I want to leave this for just a moment because let's just pay attention to this. Job tore his robe and shaved his head. This is not an instantaneous thing. Shaving your head in the old days when there wasn't electric clippers is not two seconds. Someone had to go and get shears. This is a thought-out thing. Someone had to get shears. Someone had to cut his hair off. Someone had to shave it down. All right? And as we're going to see as we go on in the book of Job, this is not a quick moment. He, he is engaging in something. And I want you to notice, too, that these are not happy feelings. Job does not respond immediately in a hyper-spiritual way. He does not say, oh, I thank you, God. Praise you, Father. You're an amazing, you know, loving. And, oh, I just, he doesn't do it. He tore his, and by the way, you might think that's what he's doing in the worship, but we'll get to what he actually says in his worship. And it's not a bunch of great stuff. I mean, I think it is great, but not great in this. Tore his robe and shaved his head. You know what this is? He's sitting there. He has just had horrific news come to him. He thoughtfully engages in acts that express what? Horror. This isn't even just sadness. He tore his robe for much of the rest of the dialogue that is going to happen in the book of Job. He is sitting there almost naked. He is sitting there in humiliation. He is sitting there in uncomfortableness. He is sitting there with his head shaved. These are physical expressions of horror and grief. We're also going to see anger in there. These are not happy, joy, grateful feelings. And that is very important for the book of Job and for the story of Job. And you say, but what about, what about the fruit of the Spirit? Because the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, all these sorts of things. Yes, by the way, love that. But did you know that there's more to life than joy and happiness and gratitude and some of those things? In fact, why did God create us with the ability to feel? Like, like literally, these are expressions of like horror, it's not even just sadness. Sadness. Sadness is a negative enough emotion. Sadness doesn't have anything on horror, despair, shock. Now, the thing is, why would God create these emotions? Why would God create things like not just sadness? Why would He create emotions like horror? Why would God create things like anger or despair unless there's actually a place where we're supposed to feel them. Unless there's actually a place where we're supposed to feel 
these things. God gave you the ability to feel them because there's appropriate times to feel them. Did you know that happiness is not an appropriate emotion to feel when tragedy strikes? Like, if the first thing that hits you when something horrible happens, if you feel, oh, I'm so happy, what a wonderful thing, there's something wrong with you. Is that not true? Like, we might say you're a psychopath, not a psychotherapist, as, as Blake said before, but you might be a psychopath. You don't feel the appropriate emotions when things go wrong. Feeling happy when someone dies is not what you were designed to feel. When someone dies, we should feel, when horrible things happen, we should feel horror. When scary things happen, there's a place for fear. Again, some of these emotions often in our sinful states get misused or overused or all that sort of stuff. But the fact of the matter is, Job is expressing horror. He goes on. He fell to the ground in worship. Now, we have a very narrow view of that word worship. We think of worship only as singing lovey songs to God. Look what Job says, and it's counted as worship, and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. This is a statement which the, the story defines as worship. This is a very despairing statement. It's basically a statement about the pointlessness almost of life. I had nothing when I came into this world, and I'm going to leave with nothing. How is that worship? I mean, we don't have a song like that. You mind we all got together on a Sunday morning and sang, Naked I came, <laughs> naked I will leave. I just, you just I got nothing, I leave with nothing. It's like, this is, Job is wrestling with when horrible things happen to us, this is when we question the meaning of life. We're not distracted by all the good stuff. When it's horrible, we question life itself. That's what Job is doing. And this is called worship in the story of Job. We're actually, this story is a powerful Holy Spirit story meant to show us what it means to react to suffering. So we have our first, I want to draw three practical things out of this here in the last couple minutes. Number one, expressing negative emotions in negative circumstances is worship. This is who God made you to be. Pretending to be happy when things are bad is not what Job teaches us. Trying to jump immediately to, I need to sound spiritual and mature, and I need to have the fruit of the Spirit, when actually what you're feeling is horror, is not worship. Worship isn't just saying nice things to God and making myself feel happy because that's what I thought only God wanted me to feel. God made me human, and as a human being made in his image, I feel horror when horrible things happen. I feel sad when sad things happen. I feel despair when despairing things happen. And being a human being made in the image of God means I feel those things when appropriate, and when I express that, that is worship. So don't shortcut it. There's a second thing here, though, is in this whole worship, because you think, he's worshiping. Like, we're going to see some amazing stuff. You know what else amazes me in Job's worship? He feels no pressure to defend God. How many of us, when we sit with someone who's going through something hard, 
we feel this like need. He's like puny little us. He's the creator of the universe. And if someone says anything bad about what they're going through, we're like, oh, but we just got to defend God here. We got to defend God. By the way, Job's friends are going to do that throughout the book. They are going to defend God. And at the end of it, God's going to say, you go say sorry to Job. Because the creator of the universe does not need you to defend him. Did you know that? Look what Job says next. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Job does not say, okay, i got to get this right. I can't blame God for what I'm going through. So the Lord gave and Satan is taken away. The Lord gave and my own sins meant I deserve this. No. The Lord gave and the Chaldeans and the Sabians took away. As somebody says, he says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. He does not. He fully feels and says, Ultimately, somehow, God is ultimately responsible for this. And I want you to notice here, the Holy Spirit is not insecure. The Holy Spirit does not rush in and say, whoa, 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 Job, you got it wrong. It actually was the devil. Look what the next line is. Holy Spirit, want to make sure we got this. In all this, look at, look at the all. Everything he's saying, in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. He does not defend God. I, I sometimes feel like our faith in God is so fragile as Christians. It's, I think actually more what we're doing is not actually trying to defend God. We're trying to defend our own faith because we're afraid maybe of losing it. The almighty creator of the universe is not going to fall apart because someone's hurting and has some big questions, and they're struggling with stuff when they go through stuff. He's not going to fall apart. You don't have to come up with answers. Oh, that was a God. No, 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 no. That was the devil. God's actually just making it all good. Somehow, here, if, and this parallel is not fully true, and we're going to see in the rest of Job, we're going to struggle with this more, but there is some truth to this. If I am watching my kids play in the front yard. One of my kids, let's say, I'm watching them play in the front yard. And a bully from down the street comes and just starts beating on my kid and torturing my kid and taking stuff from my kid. And I just happily stand there and watch. Now, you could defend me and say, well, he didn't do it. It was the bully that did it. You could defend me. But ultimately, somehow, somehow, I do have some responsibility in this. Now, that is not a perfect parallel for God at all, and Job is going to wrestle with this. But there is a sense in which God could stop bad things from happening. And he doesn't. And right away, we go, oh, i got to make him sound good, though. Job doesn't do any of that. Job just says, somehow God is involved, and somehow God is responsible, and somehow God is here with me. But he does not feel the need that I have to come up for reasons how to make God look good. His friends are going to do that, and his friends are going to be wrong. You and I don't need to feel that pressure. You know what we need to do when people are struggling and when they're mad? It's actually, you know what Job teaches us here? There's actually a place to be angry with God. And the creator of the universe isn't going to fall apart 
because someone's wrestling with big questions when they suffer. Don't shortcut people's pain by trying to defend God. You know what the best thing you can do when someone's in pain and they're upset and they're wondering why would God not stop this? Don't give them an answer. Just sit there and hug them. Be mad with them. I'm going to see this as Job wears on. He's not going to tear a strip off God's back or nothing like that, but he wrestles with this. And finally, stop feeling guilty about your negative emotions. Your negative emotions are what God gave you to feel in negative circumstances. So stop, and if you're a parent, stop doing this to your kids. How many of us parents, we always want to tell our kids what to feel? Stop being grumpy. Stop being sad. Cheer up. And it's all super helpful advice coming from your mom and dad, and immediately you cheer up and you feel better, right? That's what happens when your spouse does that to you. Immediately your emotions change. I feel better. Thanks for telling me. <laughs> yes. Stop feeling guilty about your negative emotion. Now, by the way, you're saying there's got to be more to it than this. Yeah, there is. There's 41 more chapters, and I'm just giving you chapter one. But chapter one says expressing negative emotions in negative circumstances is an act of worship. Chapter one says don't shortcut people's pain by trying to defend God. He's big enough to handle it. God just is. He doesn't need your defending and you know what? If some people in the midst of their pain wander off the path for a little bit, you know what? That's okay too. Keep loving them. God just is. And he will pull them back in his time. Stop feeling guilty about your negative emotions and stop making other people feel guilty for their negative emotions. I want you all to bow your heads and close your eyes right now. Because as pastor here, I get the privilege, I guess. But it's like the saddest thing. I know lots of your stories, and there's like way too many people in here this morning who are going through terrible stuff. Relational stuff, kids stuff, health stuff, financial stuff. And if in addition to your pressure of you trying to survive all that stuff you're going through, you have the added pressure of I have to perform for God and make him feel good about how I'm going through this or make my Christian friends feel good about how I'm going through this, that is a pressure Job doesn't want you to carry. God is. And he will meet you in your darkest emotions if you'll allow yourself and your friends to feel them. Father in heaven, we come to you today not with answers, but as a church, community, and family that wants to be better together in our pain. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen.